first order of the day is a swim down at the beach. It's a public beach, but if we're early and strategic enough, we can get well, a skinny weekdays, dip. On weekdays, I get up at 5.30, um, I make myself some coffee, and I sit down at my desk and try to write. And um, I found that waking up at 5 a.m. was the key. I guess it was dark, and so there was no witnesses to what I was doing. I sort of felt alone. This is The, the Food world. Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. And then I'd have a big bowl of my husband's homemade granola. That was this perfect moment where I'd sort of feel full and I'd relax into the start of my day. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Food rituals can start early in life. Back in the 1970s, my cousin Sandy used to watch television in the basement for 48 hours a day, said his mother Jess. When he was hungry, he'd go exploring in the deep freeze. Before Christmas, there would usually be a stash of Jess's donuts in there. Jess uses my grandmother's recipe to make these donuts every Christmas. They're famous. She makes the batter full of lots of nutmeg the night before and rolls it out the next day. She takes her donut cutter, a weathered circle within a circle, and presses it into the dough. She bought the donut cutter at Thompson & Sutherland in New Glasgow, she and her husband returned their duplicate wedding gifts for useful things like loaf pans and a donut cutter. Thank goodness. She heats oil in a large cast iron fry pan. When a tiny piece of dough bubbles when it's dropped in, the oil is ready. Jess fries the donuts about eight at a time, dips them in sugar, and leaves them to cool. I can't believe Jess was able to stockpile donuts in the freezer before Christmas. When I make them, they're gone in a day. So Sandy, he'd rummage around in the deep freeze until he found the donut stash. Then he'd perch a few on the back of the television. The heat would thaw the donut perfectly. One day Jess discovered white sugar on the top of the television while dusting. She thought sugar on the television was highly unusual. But she didn't get mad. A donut warmed by a television that had been on for hours and hours was his ritual. She couldn't mess with that. On today's episode of The Food Podcast, I'll talk with Dr. Martha McDonald, a folklorist and acting director of the Labrador Institute of Memorial University. We dive into the world of food and ritual, We'll also hear from a few artists and writers who use daily rituals to spark their creative flow. Martha says this practice involves a touch of magic. I have a little pink book by my bedside called Daily Rituals by Mason Curry. It chronicles how some of the greatest minds of the past 400 years organized their schedules in order to be creative and productive. My interest in other people's rituals is borderline obsessive. I work from home, cooking, writing, testing recipes, mothering. So when I come across someone who inspires me, who also works from home, I want to know their secrets. Let's start with Mason Curry, the author himself. My daily ritual is to get up early in the morning. Um, I've always been a morning person. I I tend to have a kind of focus and attention 
uh, early in the morning that I can never quite recapture later in the day. So on weekdays, I get up at 5.30, um, I make myself some coffee, and I sit down at my desk and try to write um, for an hour or two. Uh, I try not to look at my email or headlines, at least for the first part of that time. And um, yeah, that's kind of like the most important part of my day. Um, I often feel like I get more done during those first couple of hours uh, than I do during the rest of the workday. And uh, my one mildly quirky uh, habit during this time is um, when I was first working on this book uh, in Brooklyn, I lived in a kind of drafty, cold apartment, and I got in the habit of wearing this one hooded sweatshirt, and I would put the hood up because it was cold. And um, now it's gotten to where I like that feeling of uh, having the hood up when I'm, when I'm writing first thing. It kind of feels like... Uh, having blinders on or something, it sort of helps focus my attention on the computer screen or the notebook. So now I always wear the same hooded sweatshirt with the hood up uh, in the morning. My cousin Claire Cameron, this episode is about cousins as it turns out. She's a writer and one of the most disciplined people I know. I am a writer and every book I work on seems to come with a new routine. So for the one I just finished, um, I found it quite hard to write. It was sort of scary to write as it felt like a creative risk. And I found that waking up at 5 a.m. was the key. I guess it was dark and so there was no witnesses to what I was doing. I sort of felt alone in the world and that was the perfect way to write. But the only way I could get out of bed at 5 a.m. in the winter was to set my coffee maker, um, you know, an automatic thing. So I'd wake up to the smell of coffee brewing and that was crucial. And then I'd write um, and I didn't eat anything. And an empty stomach was also sort of part of the twitchy energy that I needed to, to really write well. So I didn't eat anything until I was done writing around 9.30 or 10 in the morning. And then I'd have a big bowl of my husband's homemade granola, hopefully with yogurt and berries or something like that. But that was this perfect moment where I'd sort of feel full and and I'd relax into the start of my day. But in many ways, it also felt like the end of my day because I'd been up working for so many hours. But it was a wonderful thing, that granola, to, to let me know I was back in the world. It's this kind of stuff, her intense style of working, I'm going to call it method writing, that is inspiring because it's just so hardcore. And there's a beginning and an end with a sense of completion so early in the day. Or how about filmmaker Andrea Dorfman? Not my cousin, but my friend and a mentor. So needless to say, I've been known to make the same breakfast as Andrea in the hopes of absorbing just a touch of her creative genius. Dave and I wake up at the same time as we would in the city, between 6.30 and 7. We don't really ever deviate from this, even on holidays, I guess because going to sleep and waking up are just highly ritualized for us. First order of the day is a swim down at the beach. It's a public beach, but if we're early and strategic enough, we can get a skinny dip in. We always get a skinny dip in. Back up at the cottage, we have toast and a latte. We need this for fuel because next we hop on our bikes and with our dog Sophie running beside us, bike to a blackberry patch about three kilometers away. 
Dave and I each pick two liters of berries. We bike back to the cottage with the dog beside us, and I spend half an hour or so doing yoga. While I'm being a yogi on the grass behind the cottage, Dave freezes the berries on a cookie sheet and makes quinoa. When I'm done, we have quinoa, berries, and yogurt. By this time, Max and Sydney might have emerged, but maybe not. Now I'll get to work. Sometimes I'm writing a film, but these days I'm doing animation for a documentary, so I'll start painting and drawing over and over and over again. In case you don't know, 24 frames makes a second. I'll animate till lunch, when I'll meet up with Dave and the kids, and take the rest of the day off. Or the rest of the day on, depending on how you look at it. Mason, Claire, and Andrea. They take simple, everyday things like food, drink, and hoodies, and use them to focus their creative flow. Food isn't just fuel, it becomes a reward, a treat, a before and an after. A ritual in place that allows work to flow. I love these details. Ritual, I think, is a kind of practice or a ceremony that sets something aside from daily life. That's Martha McDonald, a folklorist. She's also my cousin. And Sandy, the donuts in the basement guy, He's Martha's brother. And as folklorists, we look at rituals as part of the whole wide area of scholarship that we call custom and belief. So that takes in things like rites of passage, ideas around reciprocity, and customs that bring balance to society. And rituals are part of that. They're meant to allow us to take some form of control of our daily life, and that's why they're so important to us. Coming into this conversation, which is really an extension of a conversation Martha and I had walking one afternoon on the beach together, I had never considered a ritual as a way to control life. Martha says that folklorists start with the assumption that we are all members of several folk groups, religious, familial, occupational, ethnic, and each group has different traditions and rituals that we pass along. Because Martha, Claire, Sandy, and I are cousins, we share a family group and we have rituals in common. We make donuts at Christmas, We're of Scottish descent and like the sound of pipe bands. As Canadians and as Protestants, we bring food to the bereaved. Sometimes we pray before a meal. But how do these practices control life? Apparently, it has to do with uncertainty. Martha lives and works in Labrador, where she studies language loss. Labrador is vast. It's on the eastern edge of Canada, where the Inuit live coastal lives while the Innu, up until 50 years ago, were nomadic. But of course, time changes the way of life. Martha looks at how the Innu and the Inuktitut language has been lost over time. As a folklorist, she looks at their daily life to find answers. Rituals, as it turns out, help to piece it all together. In Labrador, there are several different groups there. The Innu have a very interesting tradition of food sharing. Their culture is really based around the caribou, which is why it's difficult now as the caribou herds are dwindling, because even still it's an important source of nourishment, but also of religious significance, really. The belief around the caribou is that the caribou offers itself to the people to be eaten. And so there have always been prayers and rituals, uh, burning of the antlers or the bones. It kind of creates a map to show where the caribou can be found, so that the people who were nomadic until 50 years ago or so, they had to go and find the caribou in order to live. So the idea was that the caribou would offer themselves up and in return, the remains of the caribou had to be treated with great respect. So I could certainly remember in my earlier days in Labrador that you could see that people had put the bones or the antlers up in the trees so the dogs wouldn't chew on them because that was seen as disrespectful. 
those traditions around hunting and food are carefully observed in many cultures. All of these food traditions have a lot of magical thinking around them. And if you think about it, you can see that the reason that that is the case is because food has traditionally been hard to obtain. And there's been always an uncertainty about whether you could get it. So hunting cultures and farming cultures really had to have some kind of way of reinforcing the likelihood of them being able to obtain that food source. And therefore, this paying of respect, offering of prayers, sometimes a sacrifice of something, a libation that would be poured on the ground by the ancient Greeks. All of that is to kind of try to give the power that would be controlling the food source some kind of indication that you were going to be respectful. Rituals around food are meant to never take it for granted and to try to do the best you can to ensure that you'd have a constant supply of it. A lot of that has to do with the function of folklore in general, which is about being able to control your circumstances so that the more uncertain something is, the more likely it is that there's a lot of folklore around it. And we see this in, for example, occupational folklore, where there's a lot of what I would call folk belief, but would be called more generally superstition. You can see that people in high-risk occupations have a lot of superstitions. People who are sailors and fishermen and people who work on oil rigs, for example, we've seen in more modern times, uh, cowboys. Occupations like that that were risky had a lot of beliefs so that people could take a lot of precautions in order to keep themselves safe. I think some of that magical thinking around the gathering and the preserving and the trying to make sure that one had control over the food source is because of the precariousness of its availability, especially in earlier times. Precariousness. When we as humans don't have structure imposed on us, a life can feel precarious or uncertain. It seems odd to compare a life as a writer or an animator to that of an oil worker or a hungry nomad. But the challenges are relative and they're risky. Being a creative person is risky because you just don't know when it might leave you or when you don't have any inspiration. And I think even something I've done that's not particularly creative, but writing a thesis, I found that I would have to do it at the same time, in the same place. And if I found that writing was difficult, I had to write something anyway. You know, you have to keep that effort going. I think for the truly creative people that you're talking about, they have a very unstructured life and they have no sense of predictability around whether if you're writing a play, is anything going to occur to you today, for example? I think that those rituals help to impose some sort of routine, but also some kind of order to get that person feeling that at least they can control this part of their life. They don't know if the painting's going to be any good today, but they know that they can set themselves in the proper frame of mind for it possibly to happen by having that cup of coffee and sitting down at that table. And I think that it must be a component of the creative mind to look for ways to impose order on what is essentially kind of a disorderly life. Because this is an episode full of family, why not pull in my Aunt Sandra Brownlee, the weaver? She was also in episode 10. Sandra is the one who introduced me to the book, Daily Rituals, in the first place. I once asked Sandra what she thought the difference between ritual and routine was. She said that ritual was routine, with an element of magic woven in. Before Sandra sits down at her loom, she makes coffee. She opens the bag of beans, pauses, and inhales their aroma. Then she grinds the beans, spoons them into the pot, covers the grinds with boiling water and stirs, then slowly presses the lid down. She says the process is a meditative practice, a daily ritual 
before the creativity flows. Any of these rituals that people talk about, say, in that book, you know, whether you're taking a bath or going for a walk or whatever, they're ordinary things, but it's the significance that you place upon them by saying, if I do this, this will happen. And this is a kind of magical thinking that's very common in all of these customs and beliefs that we've talked about, that people have, I don't like to say superstitions because that has a pejorative sound to it, like it's naive or uneducated, when the fact is that everybody has some of these things where they put their left shoe on first or they feel like they have to do a certain thing in a certain way or something bad might happen, not a specified thing. Or it may just be that they need to have these routines in a certain way or they feel they won't be productive, that they haven't properly opened and closed their day. And this is something that folklorists often look in terms of context. We look at how, for example, people who sing traditional ballads in Newfoundland, they would sing these long ballads that are inherited from one person to another. They're anonymous, which is another one of the characteristics of folklore. And then the last verse of it is always spoken rather than sung. And then the person will sit back in their chair, and that's the indication that that performance is over and now something else can begin. So we look at the kind of meta-narration or the meta-happenings around an event and say, this is what a productive day is, that your Aunt Sandra is having her coffee and not just having coffee that somebody dropped off to her from Tim Hortons. So that could be a ritual if that was what she was used to. But she is infusing that with the significance of my creative day now begins. That is why she has attached this kind of magical thinking to it that says, if I do this, especially when it's connected with food, now my productive time will begin. And maybe at the end of the day, she has something else to close off what she sees as her own obligations to create. Kind of like Claire Cameron, eating her husband's homemade granola at the end of her working morning. She's closing off that obligation to create. I like that idea. I also like Mason Curry's hoodie ritual because I definitely need blinders on while sitting at the computer. Or Andrea's morning skinny dip. But when I swim, I'm usually within eyeshot of all those cousins, and they may not find that ritual quite as magical as I would. Thank you, Dr. Martha McDonald, Sandy McDonald, Claire Cameron, Andrea Dorfman, and Mason Curry. His book, Daily Rituals, is available at your favorite bookstore as are Claire Cameron's novels, The Lion Painter and The Bear. Do you have certain drinks you always pair with certain foods, like red wine with pizza? Or is it beer with pizza? Let us know on Twitter at The Food Podcast, or send us an email, thefoodpodcast at gmail.com, or leave us a message on The Food Podcast Facebook page. And it makes it easier for people to find The Food Podcast if you rate and review us on iTunes. It just takes a second and it makes such a difference. So pretty please rate and review us. And as always, thanks to Jen Grant for our amazing theme song. Incidentally, Jen always meditates and does yoga while wearing her stage makeup before every show. That's her ritual. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. <laughs>